You're listening to a recording of a sermon delivered at St. Rose Community Church. To learn more about our church, please visit our website at www.sdrosecc.org. Well, good morning, everyone. At this time, the threes and fours are dismissed to go out to their class. And if you have your Bible with you, go ahead and take it out. If you do not have a Bible, feel free to raise your hand and one of our church member, members will gladly bring you a copy of God's Word. Uh, go ahead and turn with me though to 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verses 1 through 11. So Paul recently has been following more or less a highway of immoral behavior existing within the Corinthian church. Specifically, the last two weeks, Brandon has helped us explore Paul's address in chapter 5 of such immorality existing, in fact, in one of the members of the church, exposing this church's lacking ability to see and deal with sin within their church, thereby undermining their love for this individual, their love for their church as a whole, their love for their community. So today, uh, we don't really find Paul necessarily necessarily exiting that highway in which he's dealing with this immoral behavior, but Paul more or less shifts lanes, broadening the unfortunate scope of the Corinthians' failures as a church. There seems to be a fundamental breakdown in their ability as a church to recognize sin, discern its harmful effects, and in any way, as it relates to the gospel, handle it. So in simplest terms, Paul is helping this church see this dividing threshold, if you will, separating the church from the rest of the world. You see, this this threshold seems to no longer be clear to them. Paul's aim has been and will be today to make that clear again for this church. So again, open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 through 11. Let's go ahead and pray for a greater understanding of our text together. Father, I just praise you, Father, for my brothers and sisters, my family, um, my friends, Father. I thank you for the gift that they are, Lord, and I pray that today we would search the depths of your word, Father, unearthing, uh, Father, things that may be existing in our lives, but unearthing them for the very purpose, the very reason of bringing them out into the opens, Father, for reconciliation, for the gospel, Father, for the truth of Jesus to spread to all the world. We love you, and we ask this in Jesus' precious name, amen. Beginning in verse 1 of chapter 6, Paul says, When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to the law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? 
How much more, then, matters pertaining to this life? So, if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers, but brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. So think back to where we were the last two weeks, specifically in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 5. Paul says, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Ironically, as Paul puts it, it it seems that they seem to be arrogantly ignoring adulterous, incestuous actions within a member of their church. But somehow fully on board, taking one another to court over, as Paul puts it, trivial matters. So big, sinful issues like a man sleeping with his father's wife, they aren't handling, and lesser conflict between members, they were taking one another to civil court. So clearly there's confusion. Clearly there is misunderstanding. Clearly there is emotional subjectivity. More than likely, yes, there is real hurt, real wrong existing in Corinth, but they seem to have no clue how to deal with any of it. Furthermore, they don't seem to really know what's at stake if they don't figure out together as a church a better way to deal with these grievances, these conflicts. Again, verse 1 says that when one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to the law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Paul, in just the previous verse of chapter 5, the last verse there, he commands them to purge the evil person from among you. In other words, You have one among you who is claiming the name of brother, embracing evil, and unless you want evil to spread in your church, as he puts it, like the leaven in bread, remove this evil. Paul says, deal with it. Handle it. So now, let's move on to another matter. Let's address another matter of importance that need, needs to be dealt with. When one member has grievances or conflict with another, those grievances must be recognized. Those grievances must be handled within the church. 
So I believe the first truth that Paul very pointedly implies for us today is that there must be a process for handling church conflict. This may seem like a rudimentary or moot point um, within our church, but let's be honest with ourselves. Many of us, many of you, have experienced church hurt, conflict, maybe all of you. You see, what's happening in Corinth is not new. Maybe you've been hurt by other church members. Maybe you have hurt other members of this church. Maybe you've been hurt by pastors. Maybe by deacons. Maybe even I have hurt you in some way. As a pastor's son, um, I saw my dad and mom hurt, rejected, told things like, you know what, go ahead and take the next job opportunity because we have better use for your salary. I've seen members stand in front of the congregation on Sunday morning and announce that they were leaving the church because of my father. Many of you know my family's story. I was a pastor previously, about a thousand miles away from here, in a church that my own father pastored, in a congregation of friends and even blood relatives who had known me since I was a boy. I am now, however, today here among these beautiful people because of church hurt, because of church conflict. Maybe all or part of the reason that you're at this church this morning is because of church conflict. Maybe you're visiting today and have been hurt by churches in the past just wondering in your seat, is St. Rose like all the rest of them? Every one of Paul's letters addresses some sort of conflict between members in the church. That's why he says in verse 1, when one of you has a grievance against another, not if. The reason he does not say if is because grievances will exist in the church because every church shares a fundamental problem of sin within its members. Paul puts it very vividly in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 18. He says, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, as much as all of us would like to say that such things go away entirely once we become Christians, finding no place in our churches, the truth is, at times, I can taste the venom under my lips. Feel the death in my throat, in my throat. Deception comes out of my mouth. 
Friends, church conflict will exist in our churches because sin exists in every church member. Just a few verses later, Paul says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Sin does not just exist in the mean church members. Sin does not just exist in the confrontational church members. We in our flesh are a people of sin. Sin at its core is conflict with God and with others. If our covenant with God and others was actually represented by an unbreakable cord, our sin would be us gnashing and biting at that cord. You see, the gospel tells us that we are capable of enslaving Jesus on the cross, and every person in this room has done it. So, if such grievances or conflicts have existed since Paul's time, further back within the people of Israel, right, and, and still exist within our churches today, don't you think that it would be a wiser step for us, rather than be to surprised by conflict, surprised by grievances, it would be far better for us as a church to use all the tools that God has given us, every weapon in our arsenal, and have a process for handling conflict correctly. So think about this. What if every church that we had come from had a healthy biblical way of dealing with conflict. People would obviously be more likely to stay in those churches. Think about how many people have left the faith because of conflict. We would have had more time to minister to those people. You see, the outside world would then see a people working through their issues, not trying to tear one another apart. Obviously, we are not suggesting that we just be okay with conflict. The gospel does not turn a blind eye to sin. Otherwise, we'd be saying that the, the gentleman in chapter 5 would have to just deal with the fact that his son was sleeping with his wife. But when you're fully aware of something, in this case, conflict, you can develop a process a gospel-oriented process to help you deal with it. Ways to process and heal from hurt. Ways of helping others, other brothers and sisters, repent and find reconciliation in the gospel together. Friends, the gospel exists because sin exists. The cross is God handling your conflict, handling your sin. Too many churches, many of which have maybe even all of you have been a part of, turn a blind eye to sin, to conflict. And they never deal with it. Maybe sometimes if they do, they, they might handle it too harshly. Or in this case, not even have a gospel part, or not even have the gospel be a part of any of that process. You see, our first truth is that, God impl- that Paul implies is that, that church conflict exists. And we must have a process for dealing with it. But see, what's interesting in this church at Corinth is they're not necessarily struggling with whether or not they know that conflict exists. But they are very much struggling with how to deal with it, how to handle it. 
You see, we mentioned at the very beginning that there's this threshold um, of every church. And that threshold uh, separates the church from the rest of the world. So, so too, that very same threshold makes not, not only its people distinct, but also their thinking. And the way they think about the world should be distinct. Plainly, how can we expect a people of, of, of Jesus for whom there is therefore now no condemnation and a people for which there is only condemnation to be able to think on the same playing field as Paul addresses today. The world does not and cannot think like the church. But often, too often, like in Corinth, that threshold that separates the two becomes unclear. Look back at verse 1. He says, when one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Verse 2, or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Paul now works to bring clarity, again, to what has become a blur to them. Paul makes plain that they are taking trivial cases uh, to the local court rather than deal with them among themselves. Now, just a quick side note here. It's clear that these grievances that we're talking about today are not criminal in nature. God makes provisions within our local government for for handling things, issues of theft, of murder, or, or abuse. Too many churches, unfortunately, have implicated themselves because they've tried to handle those matters internally. Paul is talking about interpersonal conflict that can and should be worked out among Christian brothers and sisters. Verse 4 through 6 says, So, If you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is one, no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. Obviously, Paul doesn't really seem to care to to mince words. Uh, in this text. In other words, the system that you are looking to resolve your conflict, do you not realize that the least of you will be the judge over that system? Paul even takes the time to remind them at the very end of the church's, or excuse me, the world's state of mind and the way that they think. He says in verse 9, he says, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor the drunkards, nor revilers, or swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. So Paul is drawing a very clear line that opens up for us, I believe, our second truth. Is that non-Christians are not qualified to resolve conflict within the church. Non-Christians are not qualified to resolve conflict within the church. So if we digest Paul's 
list of things he's just kind of gone over. They, the world, have an askew way in the things of the way they think about sex. Idolatry. Meaning that everything they think of is God before God actually is God. They have no concept of things like marital sanctity. Sexual orientation is unnatural. They take things that don't belong to them. They keep beyond their fair share. They are not sober in their thinking. They stir up conflict and they take advantage of people. Frankly, they have no reverence for the already finished, forensic, legal work of Jesus done on the cross. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You see, Paul made almost the inverse of this exact point last week in verses 11 through 13 of chapter 5. He says, But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not to even eat with such a one. Then he says, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. The church does not judge outside the church. The outs- outside the church does not judge inside the church. Quite frankly, stay in your lane. But here's the problem. Here's the rub. Paul is saying Jesus did undeniable, cataclysmic work to resolve your conflict with God, and you didn't have to do anything to earn it. But as a church unit, you are representatives of a sinful people that can be at peace with God, and as such, you have the tools of the God of the universe at your fingertips to reconcile any grievance before the gospel, but you prefer a system completely opposed to God, a system of condemnation to make matters right for you. An even greater dimension if we use a little bit of intuition here, the depth of this problem is that these are civil cases. So from every outward appearance, Paul uses the word trivial, meaning these are not a big deal. They're not criminal in nature, meaning that nobody needs to be put to death Nobody needs to go to jail or be flogged for any of these issues. So a more disturbing reality is that these members must have been seeking financial restitution to make things right. They were bringing these issues, these grievances, out into the open, not so that Jesus could cover them with his blood. They were bringing these out, issues out into the open to smother them with stacks of cash. They were bringing, excuse me, they were seeing things as they should not be. They were not thinking in a gospel-oriented way. Understanding even deeper why Paul says a, a phrase like, I say this to your shame. Gospel resolution isn't good enough for you. 
Feeling the warm embrace of a friend once again isn't good enough for you. You need to deepen your pockets in order for it to be good enough for you. Friends, the world knows nothing of the gospel. They cannot point us to Jesus. They cannot think like the eternal family. As such, they will not inherit the kingdom of God, as Paul says. They are not a part of the family. They do not speak the family language. Are we being mean by saying that? No, we are simply saying they don't have the same father. Romans 8, 7 through 8 says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Those outside of the church are opposed to God in every way, even by the air they breathe. Now, a really quick side point is... We're not saying that the wisdom of the world um, and those outside of the church are, are, is just never valuable in any way. And there, thereby, we would, we would over-imply that we'd somehow totally disassociate ourselves from it. That's wrong. In other words, if I'm on a plane and uh, over the intercom it's announced that a man has just had a heart attack, the last call that I want to come over the intercom is them requesting a pastor to handle that situation. But when it comes to matters where the fires of sin must be extinguished, there's only one fire extinguisher, and that is the gospel. What's more is the gospel is not just a way for us to live peaceably together. Let me say that again. The gospel is not just a way for us to live peaceably. The gospel is the way that we prove to each other and the world that Jesus truly died and rose again to kill sin, not beat it with a stick. The gospel is the best weapon that we have, and it's better than every weapon the world has. There may not be really a single lawsuit that exists in the life of our church, um, but the point is that they were taking matters into their own hands, seeking those who have no concept of God or the eternal things of God, most importantly the gospel, to try to settle their matters. They're looking to a system who had not had Jesus die for them, had not had Jesus redeem their vile sin, had not had the opportunity to feel the warm, redeeming embrace of the gospel. How often have we taken matters into our own hands by gossip, looking for wisdom outside of the church, trusting in the world's wisdom over that of our church family. We run and seek refuge from non-Christians, friends, and family. You see, while we love, no doubt, interacting and ministering as we should with our lost brothers and sisters, they have no say in gospel church matters. Yes, if we're being honest, at times, our two sets of wisdom sometimes seem to, to intersect. But, but make no mistake that, that Christians and non-Christians can protest things like abortion, but do so for very different reasons. Christians and non-Christians can, can help others in need, but do so for very different reasons, and that reason is Jesus. 
People who do not know Jesus have no say in his bride, his flock, his body, in his temple, his family, has no say in how they should be cared for. It's like asking a dentist to do surgery on my heart. and They may do similar things at times, but, but that dentist is not qualified to look at my heart. So our second truth was that Paul is making clear to Corinth that those outside of the church, non-Christians, are not qualified to handle and resolve conflict within the church. So, hopefully we've laid some groundwork here. Um, Paul seems to be making it clear that they and we should be much more familiar with our capability to handle conflicts in a gospel-oriented way. But you might be saying to yourself, I don't feel as capable as Paul seems to be describing. In other words, the question is, so how is it that we are so capable? How is it that we, how are we so equipped And what must we then therefore do? You see, amidst Paul's very sharp and direct rebukes, and and even at times sarcasm, reveals there are undeniable truths. There are undeniable weapons and tools available only to the people of God. Paul reminds them. Verse 2 and 3 says, Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that you are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? Paul says some really big stuff right here. Um... Now, I don't really know about you, but I don't really sit around with a cognitive awareness of my future position in glory to judge the world, Um, much less, uh, I guess, that somehow along the way I'm going to be judging angels at some point. So unless Paul has had some sort of heavenly courtroom law class in Corinth, I wouldn't assume that many Christians have a working knowledge of their future glorious judicial responsibilities. But I think what Paul is doing here, I don't think that he's reminding them of their future job description in glory. In other words, like I need to start looking forward. We need to start looking forward to a time where I'm planning my shift at at managing the mindless rabble of misfit angels. But rather, Paul is calling attention to who, in fact, they are as a local church together. And what only they, not the world, have been entrusted to do. Look at verse 11, because this is very important. Listen closely. But you were washed, 
You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. So track with me here, because if we are understanding this correctly, this is giant. You have stood in front of the highest court imaginable and have been deemed righteous. Importantly, not by your own merits, but on the merit of the eternally perfect, obedient, innocent Son of God. The court of God has justified you, declared you righteous. You are innocent, honored, empowered, washed, sanctified. Romans 8.29 says that for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. My beloved family, you are not reformed criminals who have paid his or her debt to society. You are a firstborn of God. God, not just no longer sees your sin, pay very close attention. Because of Jesus, he sees no longer any record of your sin. How big is the gospel? Is that you are no longer a defendant in the courtroom, led out after your case has been handled You are escorted to the front, seated next to the judge, able to think exactly like him. We've quoted this a couple of times already, but there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But wait, as if Romans 8.1 was not enough, there's actually more. Because of Jesus, there is only now commendation, excuse me, commendation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We no longer approach the bench. We are behind the bench with God in a seat of honor because of Jesus. If you thought yourself a crushing disappointment to God, incapable, tripped up by trivial church conflict, you don't understand who you are. Paul is making clear that the Corinthians have lost sight of who they are together as a church. I've counseled many of you, many of you that are struggling, depressed, hurting, because of the unfortunate disappointment that you think you are to yourselves, you think you are to your church. You think you are to your God. Brothers and sisters, it's because of texts like this that I would encourage you to stop. Stop seeing what you see and see what God sees. Paul is laying shame on a people who don't know who they are because of Christ Jesus. Paul is telling the Corinthian church, you are working with finger paints able to paint the Sistine Chapel. 
The world should be seeing the artistry and the symphonic melody of a sinful people living together, richly working out their problems and loving each other. Because right in front of their eyes, Jesus is raising up for himself a Christ-like race, preparing them for unimaginable, God-glorifying work with him forever, all because of the work of Jesus. The world should be seeing finely woven tapestries, vibrant frescoes, grand symphonies, and the medium for all of them is the gospel. Our last truth for today is that churches can resolve conflict like Jesus. I pray if we know where our placement in, is inside God's courtroom with the humility of Jesus we are called to act not like the world but like God you see you may already know this but God's courtroom operates very differently from the world for being honest the last two weeks within chapter 5 God has called us to do some very very hard things in our churches But the gospel does anything but call us to turn a blind eye to things like sin. He didn't call us to do things the easy way. He called us to do things his way. To handle things like he would. Verse 7 and 8. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Listen closely. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. You see, Jesus knew that his humble submission required that he die at the very hand of his own creation. But he knew that was worth it. Paul, therefore, makes a very hard request of this church. If someone has wronged you, you may be thinking these very things in this moment. If someone has defrauded you, knowing the position you now hold because of Christ, like Christ, for the sake of love, Suffer wrong. Be defrauded. While such a thing sounds painful, remember this church is very sick. They've been following this path for quite some time. Because of course the aim would be that both parties would have this overwhelming love of the gospel. And and such things are resolved because both parties humble themselves simultaneously. But Paul has just made very clear that one side is better than none. And if so, at worst, you are handling your conflicts and resolving them exactly like Jesus. Jesus did all the one-sided work of reconciliation. 
His sacrifice alone brought the retribution we all need. We can handle our conflicts, our grievances, like Jesus, like a king. I love a very specific story to give us an example of this. In Philippians chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. Paul actually addresses a conflict that exists between two women in the church. He says, I entreat Yodi and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, and yes, excuse me, I ask you also, true companion, in other words, the church, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose name are in the book of life. You see, what I love about this passage is that that letters like Paul's were meant to be read in open congregation. That means that Paul fully expected these two women to be present and this issue worth being aired out in open congregation. But it's not so much that issue when, when you realize what has just been read in the book of Philippians. What these women had just heard just moments before was Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. It says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, Paul challenges them and us to suffer wrong or be defrauded is not just us taking it on the chin. It is a God-given trait of meekness. Paul is challenging them and us to be a people like Jesus, a people controlled by God. We bow to Jesus, the most ultimate one-sided conflict resolver in existence. There's a reason. Paul says, what have I to do with judging outsiders? And we are to judge those inside the church. It's because all the judgments inside the church, unlike the world, is not something they can comprehend. You see, in God's courtroom, all the judgments fall on Him. God, our judge, accounted for all of the sins of our church. We can be a people who know our sin and the sins of our brothers and sisters have been accounted for. That there is no longer a record of. We bring them out into the open so that Jesus can cover them with his blood every time. See, proof of this is that we are a people of faith. We are a people who repent 
and believe in Jesus. The Jesus for which every courtroom would rise at his honor would be the one to absorb the cost of those pleading their cases. Why? Because they have no case. They can only have faith. Being a Christian at times is not easy. We, like the Corinthians, will at times forget our place. We'll forget our position. But Jesus never will. Sometimes we'll forget what we're supposed to do. Sometimes those things will get interrupted. But it's words like this that that help reorient us to what God and how God sees us. We are a people that are able to fight. Using every weapon that God has given us to stay together. Settling our differences. We are the heavenly outpost of heaven. Together we prove that heaven is real. Together we prove that the Garden of Eden was a real place. We are the only institution on the planet entrusted with the gospel. The only ones who can show what Jesus does in fact do to the human heart. Don't sue each other. Love each other. Like Christ loved us. So our truths were, and I'll morph those into some into some takeaways for us. Truth number one, there must be a process for handling church conflict. Recognize that conflict exists. It's part of what we do, right? We have to have a process for dealing with it. Don't be surprised by it. Truth number two, non-Christians are not qualified to resolve conflict within the church. Don't look to the world expecting them to be able to handle your differences. If you're confused about the weapons that you have, talk to a pastor, talk to another loving church member, help each other. If you have grievances with one another, talk those things out. Repent. Truth number three, churches can resolve conflict like Jesus. Handle conflict like Jesus. Remember that you didn't just pass through this courtroom, you are now seated next to Jesus. You can sacrificially, with gospel richness, think like Jesus. Resolve your grievances like Jesus. If you're not a Christian and you're with us today, we don't want you to be anywhere else but with us. Put your faith in Jesus. Allow Jesus to settle your conflict with God. Become a Christian. Join a church. If you are a Christian, just continue to place your faith in Jesus and just trust him and his way is always the best way. And I'll leave you with this. A wise man once said, when you just think you can't take it anymore, look at the cross and take it a little more. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for my family. I thank you for this church. Father, I pray for them. I pray for us. Father, I pray that we would be so distinct within our community, Father, within our world. Father, that the, the world not see a sinless people, Father, but a people that, that can repent and can do so together. I thank you for words and texts like this. Even though they are hard, I pray that they would allow us to stretch our faith.
Father, dust out those corners of our faith together. We love you dearly, and we ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.